Thanks, Mandy Mosley and Rob Harris and your team. Good morning. A beautiful spring day out there. How many of you had a graduation of some kind the last day or so? Just a few. It seems like all my social media is just graduation. I don't know if you've looked at yours this morning, but it's striking all the folks in Mother's Day. So, Sandy, thanks for your prayer and for each of you. After Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple complex, they wanted to kill him. As a reminder, in Mark chapter 11, 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus had been saying, and they began seeking how to destroy him. They were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When we study this section of Mark, we're going through paragraphs a little bit at a time, but this storyline is happening very quickly. It's a matter of days. It'll take us weeks to get through this section, but what's going to happen from his arrest, uh, when he goes back and forth from Pilate to Herod, when he spends the night in Caiaphas's dungeon prison house, uh, when he's mocked and spit upon and crucified, uh, killed, buried, resurrected. This is happening with very quick pace. But the narrative, of course, we want to take it a little slower. So keep in mind, even though we're, we kind of drilled down in these chapters a little bit, this is going on very quickly in the actual timeline of when it occurred. To look at this so-called Passion Week narrative, uh, Kent Hughes writes a very good introduction to this section. Let me just read from Kent as we're going to consider this passage. Jesus stood on Solomon's porch on the east side of the court of the Gentiles amidst a forest of huge Corinthian columns, each rising almost 40 feet high to a richly ornamented roof, forming a colossal veranda that extended several hundred feet to the north and the south. Below the immense porch was a breathtaking view of the Kedron Valley, descending 450 feet below. What a view that would afford one who had the leisure to stand in the cool stone shade and look out onto the Kedron Valley or across to the Mount of Olives or the sun-drenched Judean hills. But Jesus had no time for such leisure. He was engaged in terminal conflict. He entered Jerusalem and was openly proclaimed Messiah. He cursed a fig tree, and it was found withered the next day. With righteous anger, he cleansed the temple, now on Solomon's porch, surrounded by chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders, in effect the Sanhedrin. He refused to tell them where his authority came from because of their malevolent unbelief. With effortless brilliance, he asked them a counter-question they dared not answer, thus freeing him from an obligation to their evil-intentioned query. Jesus had them, and there was nothing they could do about it. He further used the occasion to give them what is called a judgment parable, the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers. This would devastate them. At the same time, it was gracious, for it's a convicting summary of God's dealing with his people meant to reach their hearts. In it, Jesus described, number one, the hope of God for his people, two, the kindness of God for his people, three, the severity of God, and four, the ultimate triumph of God in history, who for us, this parable is a grid through which we should evaluate our own lives. This text really is going to deal with authority. It's going to deal with how they perceive Jesus' authority, how they challenge his authority, who really has authority, and 
So there's two layers of this I want you to be thinking about as we go through this story. One is how are you relating to Christ's authority in your life? And this is a little more precarious and a little more uncomfortable. How do you relate to those human beings over you who are in authority, even though they're not good and godly? Because we all have them. So how, does, how do they respond to Christ's authority? How do you and I respond to Christ's authority? And then at a second tier level, how do we do with those? Because we're all under someone's authority, and many of us in this room have authority over others. So keep that in the back of your mind as we look at this. Chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 27. I believe we have this on the screen as well. This is the challenge to Jesus' authority. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now this group of religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the elders, or the chief priests, this, this group comprises the Sanhedrin. It's not specifically mentioned, but it would be like talking about Congress gets together. Well, Congress can mean just the House. It can also mean the Senate. It can mean the whole body. When they're speaking of this group, it really is representative of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the most powerful political religious authority of the time. Remember, Rome is occupying Israel at the time of Christ's life, but they gave them great freedom to conduct their religious political things the way they wanted to within within basic great liberty, within a few re, uh, restrictions. This was the highest authority, and they come to Christ. It's comprised of 70 people, technically 71, because the chief priest would be over the 70. Now, this is a formidable group, and they're asking him two questions, but they're essentially one and the same. By what authority, or, uh, you look down further in the text, who gave you this authority? We've talked about this many times before, but just as a reminder, uh, in, in Judaism, you didn't just give up and give a sermon like Rob or Lloyd or I or Phil would give, where we just say, this is what we think it means, and da-da-da. It was case law. Any of you have any legal mindset or background or know an attorney, talk about case law. You, you have to say, the precedent was, in, in Roe v. Wade, this was the verdict, and that case law has weight. So you don't just say, I think this passage means X. You must cite other sources. That's not one-to-one, -one, but it's a pretty close way the rabbinic model worked. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says things. And the way he says them and his grasp of the, of the, the law is so profound, the scribes and Pharisees can't joust with him, and he's teaching with authority. He didn't go to their rabbinic school. He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a scribe or a Pharisee. He was a rabbi, but not in the traditional sense. And so they're afraid of him. They want to kill him. And so they're going to confront him on his authority. Jesus, however, turns the tables, not only literally in the prior section with the, the temple complex, but here when he challenges their authority in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and I will tell you, by what authority I do these things? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now the counter question is not evasive on Jesus' part. It's a rabbinic tool. You would ask a question back and forth. Some of us, we know the Socratic method where when a student asks a question, you ask another question. So you're trying to help them think critically. Well, in kind, in the rabbinic model, again, a counter question was, well, 
before we establish that, let's go back to the bigger issue. So what do you think about John the Baptist? Now, a couple of things to observe here before we look at the questions Jesus asked. It strikes me, number one, he takes control. They can't trap him. They can't trip him. They can't catch him. They can't box him in. He takes control of the situation. And as I was studying this about two weeks ago, uh, one of the things that, you know, I don't know when you read the Bible, I, I don't want to sound too overly mystical, but when God kind of talks to you in the back of your head that place or something really convicts you or go, ooh, that one's close. Um, the, the thought occurred to me, Jesus is never out of control and Jesus never loses control. But he always takes control. That's a really good reminder for anybody in this room who is a leader or has authority over others. He never loses control. He's never out of control. But as a leader, he takes control. And there's times when taking control means he steps back. Other times he steps in. But it struck me in a new, a fresh way. He's never out of control, and he never loses control. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Now, this is where I wish we could all read the Bible in the original language. Uh, the, 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 your Bible probably says, I'll ask you one question. Literally, in Greek, it's, I'm going to ask you one word. I want one word from you. And the word is heaven or man. It's like, I'm going to ask you a yes or no question. But what he's asking them, I want you to give me the answer, heaven or man. I'm going to ask you one word. It's a cumbersome way to read it. I'm going to ask you one word. Was the baptism of John from heaven or men? Answer me. Now, the answer me is a demand. It's peremptory. He's saying, I'll tell you, but you have to answer a bigger question. Now, why does he use John the Baptist? Uh, John, of course, was, as we'll see in the explanation, was the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet, right? And he's the one who is going to announce the forerunner of Jesus. And we're going to see that in Mark 1 and Mark 9 and other places about how John's role plays into the story. Uh, all the Gospels, except John, John's Gospel, uh, the Gospel of John, are going to detail the baptism that John brings. But are you going to acknowledge or deny that John was from heaven? One word, heaven or man. Don't miss what's going on here. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, although Mark doesn't describe it the way Matthew and Luke do, we still know the backstory. When the heavens open up, and this is my son whom I'm well pleased, uh, this is identifying Jesus Christ as Messiah. Last Old Testament prophet, first New Testament prophet, now we've got the prophet, priest, king coming on the scene. So John's identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Why is that important to the question to pose to Sanhedrin? What authority do you do these things? Let's back up. Because if John's authority is manward, then you're going to say, I'm of man. If John's authority is Godward, then John identified me as the Son of God. And they know this. They know what he's setting them up to do. Don't miss it. Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say for men, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said to him, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They're exposed. If from heaven they're guilty of unbelief in John, if from men the wrath of the masses is going to come after them. Josephus, who writes after this time, a Jewish chronicle, 
Um, if you're a student and like to read some pretty dense stuff, uh, all of it's on PDFs and eBooks. It's all free. You don't have to buy Josephus. You can read them online. But uh, Josephus records that after John was beheaded, its popularity grew enormously. And that makes sense. Because any of you, uh, you know, when, when Francis Schaeffer died, all, we all started reading Francis Schaeffer. When C.S. Lewis died, we started reading C.S. Lewis. When an artist dies, his or her music, his or her art is worth a whole lot more. Let me encourage you struggling artists, you're worth more dead than alive. <laughs> well, John Stock grew tremendously after he was dead. Herod is the one who has him beheaded, and so they know this, and they go, man, if we say of man, now remember, there's thousands of people that are crushing into Jerusalem this time of year. This is a major festival, is the major festival of the year in the old city. We do not know. Verse 33. Tragic. Politics won over theology. We don't know. We're the Sanhedrin, but we don't know. Because politically, this is a landmine. If we give them one word heaven, we're toast. If we give them man, we're toast. We don't know. And any of us who are probably over 45 can remember, Senator, I have no recollection of that. Senator, I don't remember that. I remember this, but I don't remember that. Because otherwise you're guilty if you admit it, or you're lying if you say no. I don't remember. It's a great neutral zone answer. Hebert writes a disgraceful answer of expediency. Members of the Sanhedrin automatically disqualified themselves to be judges concerning Jesus' authority. He had effectively caught them in their own hypocrisy. We don't know. A sidebar lesson uh, for you, and it may be your context, I don't know, but I I suspect many of us are in a place where it is unpopular to be uh, clear or um, firm about your belief in Christ. Some of you who are going off to college or in college now, um, it's a brave new world now at the university. And you're going to be vilified and attacked and challenged unlike you've ever been challenged before in your Christian faith in the insular little Williamson County world that we live in. It's tough out there. And what will happen is if the masses say one thing, it's real hard to stand against the politics on your theology. It's very hard. And you'll be challenged. I was talking to a med student last night uh, finishing up her third year, and uh, she's up in New York. And I said, what's it like to be a believer up there? And she was telling me all the story. Now, she was a pretty remarkable individual because she's very strong in her faith. And it was interesting, just asking her, just pummeling her questions, telling because I love medicine and med school, and that whole thing's just real intriguing to me. And so I'm just asking her all these questions about her faith and the diversity where she is, and she's a minority as a white woman in this world. And it's interesting hearing her take on the whole thing, but she was very firm about what she believed and talked about having really good conversations with people with very different opinions and backgrounds. And that's rare, because typically politics wins over theology. It's not impossible, but it's a good reminder uh, to know why you believe what you believe and be able to smile and not be angry or get out of control or get mad. But that is just as egregiously wrong as saying nothing and stepping back and just, I don't know. I don't know. 
maybe it's a time for you to make up your mind about your faith. That's not bad. I'm not saying you always have to be the courageous, bold one. But when it's not popular to take a stand, that may be the time you need to take a stand. Verse 33, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you won't answer my legitimate, simple question, man or heaven, I'm not going to answer your question. At the highest level, Jesus has taken control. He is the one in authority. He is a prophet indeed. He is the Messiah indeed. Jewish leaders don't want to know that. They want to set him up and kill him. Now we shift to this parable of the vine grower. And if you're just reading through the gospel sort of casually, it's like we have this abrupt change. It's exactly in the flow of the narrative. I want to show it to you. So Jesus is going to explain God's authority and by implication why he has authority. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. Now, a little Bible study methodology hint. Uh, who's the to them? Who's he speaking to? Is this a new group? New venue? Just look down at verse 12 of the same chapter, and you will see they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So the primary audience is still this entourage that has come from representing the Sanhedrin. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. It's not a small meeting. I'm going to say there's 50 to 100 people crammed around him as he's going up in the, in the colonnade and the temple complex where he would have been at the time. It's a very busy time. These are only men, sorry ladies, only men that were in this area, in this stoa area of Solomon's portico and porch. And this is where a lot of exchange and dialogue went on. And so there's a crowd of muckety-mucks, theologians, religious leaders, and he's telling this story. He began to speak to them in parables. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. Stop for just a second. This is very obvious. Most of us may know this, but just as a reminder, if you have a Bible where this is all capital letters, you're probably not going to always chase around the little cross-references in your Bible. So whenever you see it where it's all capital letters, that's a sign to tell you this is an Old Testament quotation. Okay, it's just for free, okay? And rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive of the produce of the vineyards from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head. And treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And that one they killed. And so many others. Beating some and killing others. He had one more. A beloved son. He sent him last to them. Saying they will respect my son. But those vineyard growers said to one another. This is the heir. Come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They took him. And killed him. And threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Now this parable is taken from Isaiah 5, the first two verses, and that's why we have the all capital letters. It's a quotation from them. The Sanhedrin would know this story well. Israel, of course, is representative of the vineyard. The man who plants the vineyard is representative of God. The wall is a protection. And they understood walls. We think of Nehemiah's wall. Uh, the wall was twofold. It was to enable worship within the context of the wall and to keep bad people out from affecting their worship. So this was something God built. He built Israel. He protected Israel. 
And he was the one that plants the vineyard. Now, the vineyard workers are going to be the religious leaders. You're supposed to take care of my vineyard. The explanation of the wall and the vat and the tower, we can get quite deep in this story. But what this is giving us is a picture of wealth and grandeur. Most vineyards didn't have a wall. They didn't have a tower. They didn't have all the wine presses. There was usually a community wine press because it was quite an expense to have a wine press. Usually you built a wine press where there was rock formations and the rock could be hewn and chiseled in such a way that you could press out the grapes and gather it. But the fact that there's a vat underneath it, we're getting a picture of a pretty high-end, uh, let's just call it a company. A guy comes and he builds a warehouse and he's going to employ people. And it's got state-of-the-art technology. That's the picture we're meant to see in antiquity. And this man had resources. He had land. He had the ability to build the wall. The tower is both a security as well as a storage facility. So this is a really nice place you want to work. This isn't some little, you know, Arrington Vineyard little thing. This is a big operation. That's the picture Jesus is painting in this parable. Verses 2 to 5, the owner is God, and he sends these, we're given three, Jesus gives us three illustrations of the prophets he sends, and it gets progressively worse. They beat one, they hit one in the head, finally they kill them. And it's a litany reminding them of the Old Testament prophets that were sent to them. Now, we could go a lot of places in the Old Testament to illustrate this, but let me just look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 38. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into. Can you imagine being drawn and quartered and sawn into? I, I, I don't know. Uh, men like the movie Patriot, uh, not uh, um, Braveheart. Women hate the movie uh, Braveheart. At least my woman hates the movie Braveheart. Um, but when he's drawn and quartered at the end, you imagine them pulling a bow across him and sawing him too? That's what the record of Hebrews says. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These were God's prophets. He sent to his own people. And this is the, the abuse they endured. By the way, I've always thought that'd be a great title for a book, Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. Or maybe a rock band. Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. They were otherworldly people God sent. So we might think of Elijah, who flees Ahab and Jezebel. We might think of Jeremiah, who's stoned to death at the end. We might think of John the Baptist, who had just been beheaded. It's a very poignant story. They knew what he was saying in this parable. Finally, verse 6 to 8, he sends his beloved son. Let's go back again just to remind you. In chapter 1, verse 11, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. In chapter 9, verse 27, at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. This is the third time you see it in Mark. He sends his beloved son. Mark crafts a beautiful story. Now, it says he sent him last. This is a simple word. We kind of rush over it. In Mark, it's the word eschatos, eschatos, where we get the word eschatology. Ology just means the study of a subject. Biology, the study of life. Eschatology, the study of the last times. It just means one in a series, the last one in a series. 
But outside the New Testament Greek, it means the finest one. So we have a picture of, he sends his beloved son, the finest one, the best one, the last one he sends. Verse 8, they took him, they killed him, and they threw him. Now, the arrival of the son's heir, probably for antiquity, you don't want to push a parable too far, but probably in antiquity, what it meant was, if the son's heir is coming, the heir's dead, because he would not otherwise send his son. And they knew that if they kill the remaining heir, then by laws of the day, the vineyard owners, the vineyard workers, then the renters, could then own the property and take it over. And you think of the imagery Jesus is laying upon them. The religious leaders are supposed to protect Israel. I send prophets to tell you and teach you and rebuke you and warn you and encourage you, and you kill them all. You were supposed to take care of my vineyard. It's not yours. It's mine. I let you rent out and work there. I gave you a place. I protected you. I provided everything you needed in the land. All you had to do was obey me. And instead you beat them. You disabuse him, you kill him. And we've got these three verbs, took him, killed him, threw him. And of course, it's going to parallel the Sanhedrin's treatment of Christ. They're going to take him, they're going to kill him, and they're going to throw him. Don't want to push it too far. The imagery is obviously intended for this, but many look at this really tightly and say this is what they, how the crucifixion occurs. Well, they kill him outside the city. They don't kill him inside the city walls, outside. So you've got to be careful how far you push the parable. But the point is made, um, the ones that he sent over and over again, you rejected, you, you brutalized, you beat, you sawed them in two, and um, I'm going to send the best one. The finest one, my one and only son that I love, and you're going to kill him. Verse 9, what will the owner do? Rhetorical question. He invites the listener into the story. Now, we read these parables. There's 38 parables in the New Testament. And uh, I mean, you could push some here or there depending on how you define a parable. But just say there's 38. Uh, we're in a decade that worships the word story. What's your story? Tell me your story. God's story. I mean, fellowship is rife with that language. Story, story, story. You in the music, you guys who write, men and women, it's story, story, story. It's, it's all about story. I understand that. It's, it's sort of a it, that nomenclature will go away in a decade. We, we'll use something else. But anyway, right now we're talking about story. Let's just say Jesus used 38 stories, but he also taught every time he did anything. He was always teaching. He was never not teaching, right? We would argue. But the stories are what we remember. Now, we have to keep in mind something that I forget. Uh, I don't know who your favorite voice is, but either if it means a toss-up with James Earl Jones, uh, Morgan Freeman, and Orson Welles. And some of you, most of you aren't old enough to know who Orson Welles was. Uh, but those, to me, are the three finest voices that America ever offered. And I've always asked, Dear Jesus, why did I have this nasal, dental, fricative voice? Why couldn't you have given me a Morgan Freeman voice? I mean, or, or at least maybe an Aussie or a UK dialect, right? I mean, but, but you think of a Morgan Freeman or uh, James Earl Jones telling a story. And I'm going to suggest Christ as a storyteller was the most compelling, powerful communicator on the planet. 
And when he's telling these parables, everybody is putting their metaphorical hand to their ear and leaning in to hear everywhere. They're on the edge of their seat. We read these stories so casually. This is the God-man telling a story. And he's not an actor with a great voice. He's God. So let that ratchet up your when you're reading and hearing these stories told for the umpteenth time ago, wow, the people are leaning in. They want to hear everything he said. This rhetorical question is it's really the last confrontation he's going to have besides the Pilate and Herod back and forth. What's, going to, what's the owner going to do? If you read the synoptics, Matthew's account, someone goes, may it never be. It's like, oh, my word, they're freaking out. They're on the edge of their seats. The owner's going to come back and destroy them. He's going to bring an army with them. I gave you the vineyard. I planted the vines. I built a wall to protect you. I told you what to do. All I wanted was a portion of it. I gave you the bulk of it. I just wanted you to take care of what I built, I established. I gave you the work. I gave you the job. I gave you the position. And this is how you treat me? I'll kill you all. They understood it. Verse 10. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, just another, what, all caps, what's that mean? Thank you, Old Testament. Somebody's listening. The question mark at the end of verse 11. If you're, again, don't read carefully, it's like, and this is marvelous in our eyes? No, the question is the first part of the verse. Have you not even read the scripture? Question mark. And then the quotation. Make sense? It's a fine detail, but just pointing it out. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared him, the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You know, liberals and those who don't believe the Bible can read all sorts of things into it. The record's pretty clear. They knew you're <laughs> talking about them. They knew the acrimony Jesus had just spilled on them. Now, have you not even read the scripture is an incredulous question. Um, if I was going to paraphrase it, are you kidding me? You of all people don't know this. This is like the basic rule number one. You don't know. Have you never read the Bible, guys? I mean, this is an incredulous stick of a question and a sharp stick in their eyes. Um, now, this is, called, this is a Hallel Psalm from Psalm 118, and uh, uh, we read a part of this in our worship package this morning. Psalm 118 is a Hallel Psalm. Now, we, I can't be sure, and I'm going to give this a, a, on a, a 100 to you know, 0, I'm going to give it a 10% likelihood, just to give you a color of the story. This is Passover week. Passover week, you sang the top 40. Now, you sang the Ascent Psalms when you were going up to Passover, but during Passover, you sang the top 40. This is a top 40. It's a Hallel psalm, a worship psalm that they would have been singing. They would have known this by memory. So the quotation he gives them about the stone that the builders rejected, they're very familiar with it. In my sanctified imagination, 10% likelihood, maybe they had just been singing this song. The cornerstone, the builders, they, were, they knew this Hallel psalm, and Jesus quotes the top 40 back to them. The language, and Rob's talked about this, divine reversal. So the stone was rejected, but that's the most important stone. It's a real simple picture. The builders of the Sanhedrins, 
the stone was Jesus, and they've rejected him. Now, we sang a great worship uh, set. I hope you heard the cornerstone and the things we were singing about. You know, sometimes this is actually planned, you know. This wasn't just the Holy Spirit moving. This was actually planned. And the idea was to help us refocus on who is this cornerstone? What does it mean? A cornerstone can mean a number of things. Physically, it doesn't necessarily mean the keystone in an arch, which I've heard explained that way. It's a cornerstone, a foundation stone. It can be an important stone. It can be on the side of a building. Um, it means cohesion. It is that which is indispensable. It is that which is a sure foundation. It is that on which we base our faith. Now, a number of us went to Israel not long ago, and when we take groups, most of the time we go into what's called the so-called rabbinic tunnel. Uh, if you ever see pictures of the Western Wailing Wall, there's nothing spiritual or religious about that. That's just as close as you can get to where the temple used to be. So they're like outside the perimeter. And we go underground, and you go in this walkway, and they call it the rabbi's tunnel. And down there, you find that there's this stone. And we always have, you know, two people go one to one end and one to the other. I'm not even going to quote the size and dimensions of the thing, but it's one of the largest stones they've ever uncovered in the temple complex. Now, Herod, when he built the temple, Solomon builds one. Herod comes back later and builds a much bigger one, a plateau. Think of a, a sort of a hill mountain, and it's uneven. So if you took a, a shoebox and you traced it and cut it so when you laid it on the hill, the shoebox would be flat, and the, sh and the shoebox is cut along the, am I making sense, along the sign, so it's like a plateau. That's what the temple complex is today when you go there. And that's what Herod built. So when you're underground, you're looking at these foundation stones. Not, not where the temple sacrifices occurred. You're probably conservatively 30 to 50 yards. But there's a stone down there that is so massive, and we illustrate it. We have two people stand there, we, and the docent, or, I talk, or someone talks about the size and the weight. It's like it was machined to fit in there. You can't put a piece of paper in it. And then they stack them on top of each other about a half inch apart as they built the wool foundation wall. And we stand there and go, that's a cornerstone. Because it bears the weight of that wall. That's a good picture of Christ. The thing that can bear the weight of God's glory, of God's kavod, of the epiphany and shekinah of God has got to be a stone that is so stable that it cannot be moved. That's a cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected, that's not the one, is actually the one. And Mark, and, uh, excuse me, the question mark is, didn't you read this? But if I can paraphrase the quotation, Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders, but he still became the chief cornerstone. In fact, that was the Lord's doing. That's marvelous. That would be a good paraphrase of the section. Now the adversaries know it's all about him, and they're ready to kill him. They're he's no longer being coy about who he is. He's declaring who he is. These guys are smart. They're theologians. They know the law well. They know what Jesus is saying by this, and they want to kill him for it. They rejected him. He's going to reject them. He's not wholesale a malevolent God trying to destroy him, as, as uh, Kent Hughes talked about. It's, it's to show his heart. It's to show his love for them, to show hope for them. But also he's the God of wrath if they don't respond to him. The Sanhedrin stood inside the temple complex amidst all these magnificent stones talking to the cornerstone, and they reject him. 
all into this colonnade, the most beautiful architect of the time in Israel. It's, the contrast is just striking. And here's the cornerstone, and you're rejecting me. And that's what he wants them to know. Let's think about this as we try to sew what shoe leather on it. How do you respond to Jesus' authority in your life? His authority isn't ma- there to make you and me miserable. His authority is to help us. Um, when, when our parents make us do things as uh, children and preteens and teens, we hate their guts for it. But they know things actually more than we think they do. I mean, how many of us have struggled getting our children to brush their teeth? You know, you've gone through the drill, brush your teeth. Did you brush your teeth? Yeah, I brush teeth. Did you brush them well? Yeah, I brush them well. Let me smell your breath. Smells like whatever they ate. Go back and brush them again, right? I mean, we know this drill. Why do children hate to brush their teeth? Because we make them brush their teeth. So you buy them a $100 toothbrush. Still doesn't help. I think that's why God gave us baby teeth, because he knew we weren't going to take care of them as children, and we needed a good set when we got older. And I better brush and floss once in a while, you know, before I go to the dentist at least, right? We know it's good for you. I mean, there's research now that says if you brush and floss your teeth, you might live like seven years longer than the average person. Lower heart disease, all this kind of crazy stuff. Study can tell anything. But anyway, uh, we teach them to do certain things. Do your homework. Take initiative. Be on time. Be respectful. Because as a parent, as a parental, or as my kids just call me, the rents. As a rent, uh, we know more than you do when you're a child. Even though you might hate the authority. Now, as we get older, teens, everybody who's in authority is an idiot. And we rebel against authority. And as adults, we can rebel against authority. We don't like someone telling us, especially if they're wrong. And of course, if we don't want to do what they want us to do, obviously they are wrong, right? Now, as an adult, if you have people under you and you have authority over them, how do you treat them? You see, authority right now is, is not a topic du jour. We're, we're seeing a country that has become, forgive me for being less than diplomatic, a bunch of whining children on social media. I'm, I'm turning people off more and more on social media. They know nothing, and yet they spew everything. And they're saying the most ludicrous things about anybody and everybody. And we're watching uh, Congress right now, a lot of them act like children, for those of you who are into this nonsense, and like I am. And you're going, for crying out loud, where's the adult in the room? Where's someone who speaks with decorum? For goodness sakes, you don't have to sound like a, you know, a teenager without a parent. You really can be an adult. So it's a great backdrop for how do you and I speak? How do you and I deal with authority? One of my concerns for the Christian community is because the population, theology gets set aside because the politics are too hard, as more and more things are sanctioned okay by our culture, we're afraid to stand for truth and what we believe and what we're really saying is, Jesus, uh, I don't know if the authority comes from man or God, but I can't really say, but I'm going to hang out with my friends because they all say these things. And we do it in a lot of subtle ways. Let's be real specific. Those of you teenagers, are you respectful of mom and dad? Set your feelings aside just a little bit. Are you respectful of your mom and dad? 
Parents, are you respectful of your children and the fact that they're brain damaged right now? Their brains are developing? Talked to a physician about a week ago. He said there's new science now that says our frontal cortex doesn't develop till late 20s, early 30s for boys. That's kind of frightening. It's kind of frightening. That means we've got to survive as parents longer than we plan to. <laughs> Are you respectful to your husband and wife? Respectful to your employer? You know, if you don't like your employer or disagree with them, that's fine. Don't cause a scene. Leave. Get a new job. If it's really egregious, get a new job. There's lots of jobs to be had. You see, we don't like to talk about authority today. Because we're all independent. And we're all telling our story. And we're all telling our narrative. And we're all free agents. And it's all about me and how I feel. There's value in that. But that value cannot trump the value of Jesus Christ is the God-man. So when you and I treat those in authority above us poorly, are we not indirectly treating Christ poorly? Because he's got, I don't like it all the time either. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's one, two, three, and you'll be happily ever after. But I think Christ is more interested in your and my heart toward authority, even when it's difficult, even when it might be wrong. To be humble. I, you know what, Lord? I need to respond to that. A stumbling block here is pride. And that was their problem. We're the Sanhedrin, for goodness sakes. We got the phylacteries. We got the robes. We got the tassels. We're the chief priest. We're the Scribes, the Pharisees, we're the Sanhedrin. Who are you to tell us this? Pride. When Jesus was crucified, we have a picture of two thieves. There's many more, but we have a picture of two thieves. One on the right, one on the left. You know it too well. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us also. Get us off this stinking cross, paraphrase. The other one, will you remember me when you come into your heaven? One's humble, one's proud. One's demanding, one's submissive. One's self-righteous, one is self-condemned. On we could go. And I think it's a picture of all humanity. Here's the authority, Jesus Christ. You over here, doing it your own way. You over here saying, I deserve hell. Will you help me? Which one got his attention? Father, we do love you. We want to love you well. Help us to submit to you, first and foremost, to put our lives under the lens of are we submitting to the authority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And encourage everyone here that we can always reevaluate and improve. Thanks for the moms here, the grandmas, great-great-grandmas, for those who couldn't be moms, for those who have had hard, hard situations in their lives. Bless and encourage each of these women here. In Jesus' powerful and precious name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.